Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hi, welcome to Red Rum Blonde. So I remember seeing one of the Manta members on TV not too long ago. Honestly, I can't remember which one exactly, but she was up for a parole. And the woman they showed was far from the young wild girl with long hair back in the 60s. This woman was older now, her face lined with wrinkles, her long hair gray. And I remember thinking, this woman doesn't seem like the person she was before. I mean, maybe she should just be paroled. After all, wasn't Manson the mastermind? And then recently I picked up this book called Restless Souls about Sharon Tate. I guess at different times in their lives, Sharon Tate's parents and her little sister all thought about writing their own memoirs. And much pen had been put to paper in each one's case, but for whatever reason, nothing was ever published. And then Patty Tate, which is Sharon's youngest sister, eventually decided to compile everything to publish in a book. But sadly, she passed away from cancer before it could be completed. Patty's domestic partner, Elisa Stateman, was urged by Patty's daughter, Bree, to finish what her mother started. So Elisa published Restless Souls back in 2012. And it's just recently been re-released. I saw it and just picked it up on a whim. I mean, I was never interested in the whole Manson thing at all. I think like a lot of people, I just thought I knew pretty much what happened. 
bunch of crazed hippies murdered people at the behest of this crazy man. I wasn't even sure I would get into the book at all. But to my surprise, I could not put this book down. I would do the thing where I would stay up so late at night until sleep would just overtake me. And not only did I learn about Sharon Tate, I learned about what she left behind, which was an absolutely devastated family, one that never recovered from her death. And I really learned the importance of keeping the Manson family behind bars. This was something that was of the utmost importance to the Tate family. So if you think you know all there is to know about the Manson murders, I want you to keep listening. Just do it for Sharon Tate's family, because I think they deserve that much. Because I think you, like me, might see the importance of these people staying behind bars. So this week, I'll discuss the murder of Sharon Tate. Now, I will give you a warning that I'm going to discuss the murders in detail. And Sharon was very pregnant when murdered, so it gets into the rough territory. But these details are important to know so that you can understand just how violent these crimes were and why they can't be forgotten. This impact is very important because at the end of the podcast, I'm going to ask you to do something. There's so much to go over that I've decided to split it into two episodes. The first one will really help you get to know Sharon and the other people who were murdered with her. I think a lot of what's out there only focuses on Manson or the murders themselves. I mean, how much do you know about the people who died? The second part of the podcast will focus strictly on the murders themselves. So this week, let's learn a little bit about their lives. Sharon Marie Tate was born on January 24, 1943 in Dallas, Texas, to Doris and Colonel Paul James, or PJ, Tate. And Sharon's career began as a baby. Her mother, Doris, entered her into different toddler beauty contests. And in 1943, she won the title of Miss Tiny Tots of Dallas. And then as Sharon aged, so did her beauty. The pageant route led to modeling and then thoughts of entering the Miss America pageant, which was a really big deal. But her father, PJ, got orders to leave for transfer to Italy. Now, imagine having a teen daughter and now telling her you're once again moving. So not only will she lose her friends, but she won't be able to enter the most popular pageant in the country. So Sharon just flat out refused to go. And she tried everything in the book. The silent treatment, refusing to eat, refusing to pack. Her belongings had to be packed in garbage bags because she waited until the last minute to pack in protest. So once in Italy, she did a bit of modeling before landing her first film role in a Pat Boone movie. And then after that, she found another bit part. This time, she came away with a boyfriend, too, actor Richard Beimer. Now, Twin Peaks fans will know him as Benjamin Horn, but back then he was just the up-and-coming heartthrob. Through Richard, Sharon got introduced to his agent, and as luck would have it, PJ got transferred again, but this time to San Pedro, California, which is really close to Los Angeles. So after meeting Richard's agent, a guy named Harold Jeffsky, it wasn't long until Sharon was signed to a seven-year contract. She got bit parts on television shows that came her way, but nothing really substantial. 
She got together with a French actor named Philippe Fourquet on 1963, and their relationship was fraught with a lot of arguments, leading the two to end it in 1964. It wasn't long until she met one of the most important people in her life, Jay Sebring. He was born Thomas John Coomer in Birmingham, Alabama. After joining the Navy, he served in the Korean War. And then he moved to Los Angeles, where he changed his name to J. Sebring, J. being the first letter of his middle name, and Sebring after a Florida car race. J. then graduated beauty school. And when he began his career in Los Angeles, he made this huge impact. His ideas into men's cut and styling were very innovative for that time. He used scissors rather than clippers and hairspray rather than brill cream and blow dryers, which were at that time only used in Europe. So from there, Jay taught his techniques to others and eventually opened the Jay Sebring Salon franchise. So to give you some kind of idea at this time, Barbers pretty much only charged a couple of bucks for a cut, and Jay charged upwards of $50. His business then went abroad with Sebring International, and his clients were a who's who of the biggest stars of the time, like the Rat Pack, Kirk Douglas, Warren Beatty, and Steve McQueen, who eventually became close friends with him. And then Jay became a celebrity himself, appearing on bit parts and TV shows like Batman, the Virginian, to tell the truth. Supposedly, his friend Warren Beatty based his character in the film Shampoo on Jay. So every man wanted to be styled by him, and every woman wanted to sleep with him. In October of 1964, Jay met Sharon, and the two fell very hard for each other. But there was one big obstacle. Martin Ransahoff. When Sharon was about 19, producer Ransahoff signed her to that seven-year contract. And he felt she was going to be a really big star, but it wasn't something that was easily earned. To be a star, he made Sharon work really hard for it. She took acting, dancing, and singing classes. And he dictated every aspect of her life, from the things she ate to what she wore. She was forbidden to go out at night like most girls her age and absolutely forbidden to date. So needless to say, he was less than thrilled about her relationship with Jay Sebring. When he heard that Jay had proposed, he said, I give it a month. Finally, in 1965, Sharon got a legit film role opposite Kim Novak and David Niven in a film called Thirteen. Since the plot involved a blood sacrificed for a harvest and black magic, Actual witches were hired to advise the actors for authenticity, and Sharon took everything in with great seriousness. And the film ended up living up to its unlucky numbered name. Kim Novak argued frequently with producer Ransahoff, and then she suffered a horseback riding injury, causing her to be replaced with Deborah Kerr. Ransahoff's next project was a film called Dance of the Vampires to be directed by Roman Polanski. Now, Polanski had really put himself on the map as a director with the film Repulsion, starring Catherine Deneuve. And Ransahoff wanted him to direct his next film and for Sharon to star. However, Roman was dating actress Jill St. John and he wanted her for the starring role. 
Ransohoff suggested that Roman and Sharon meet for dinner and discuss it. When the two met, Sharon described it as a, quote, case of instant hate. Because Roman wanted his girlfriend for the role, he blathered during dinner about how wrong Sharon was for the role. Despite having a girlfriend, he tried to kiss Sharon when he walked her home. She ended up smacking Polanski, and their feet got tangled and they fell to the ground. Sharon just ran off to her apartment in horror, while Roman lay on the ground laughing. Sharon became as adamant about not working with Roman as she was about not moving to Italy with her parents. But her protests were just about as successful. Production began in February 1966, with Sharon in the lead role as Sarah and Roman at the helm as director. And as well as directing, Roman would also be acting. At first, this was absolute hell. Roman was not an easy director to work for. He yelled and he demanded many takes. But eventually Sharon warmed up to him. And she realized he was a serious director and a much more complex person than she first realized. So a little bit about him. Roman Polanski was born Raymond Roman Thierry Polanski in Paris on August 18, 1933. His father, Reisgard, was from Krakow, and his parents returned to his homeland of Poland in 1936, or as Roman would call it, an exquisite blunder on his father's part. His mother, Beulah Katz, was a Jewish Russian, and years later, Roman would use his mother's likeness as the inspiration for Faye Dunaway's look in Chinatown. Unfortunately, World War II broke out just three years later, and his Jewish family was sent to the Krakow ghetto. His parents were taken to different concentration camps. His father to one in Austria, and his mother was sent to Auschwitz. Roman actually saw his father's capture when he was about seven. And then somehow, he managed to escape the ghetto and live through the war. His mother did not. She was four months pregnant. She died in Auschwitz. So to survive, Roman pretended to be a Roman Catholic child that was just visiting his family in Poland. And life was really rough. At one point, he was severely beaten, suffering a fractured skull. He had to scrounge for food. When he was 12, he was forced to hold targets while Nazi soldiers fired at them. And before he even became a teenager, he'd lived this absolutely brutal life. The events he witnessed are something that would be traumatic for any adult, and he was just a child. He survived mentally by burying his emotions and memories. After the war, he was able to reunite with his father. And from there, he took up acting before going on to film school. And his film, Knife in the Water, was the first film from Poland to get an Oscar nomination. He eventually left Poland for France, where his career then blossomed. So that should give you a little psychological insight into Polanski. So now let's get back to the filming of vampires. Sharon had eventually warmed up to Roman at this point, and it turned from kind of hate to a fascination. Jay visited the set, but he was very dismayed by his fiancée's closeness to her director, and to her filming nude scenes in the movie. This did not help their already strained relationship. Distance had played its part, and the two weren't very close at this point. 
So his objections to her nude scenes were just the last straw. Because as we've learned, Sharon was not one to be told what to do and not to do. She broke off their engagement. And from there, Roman and Sharon began this very hot and heavy affair. And from the very start, he told her that he was not monogamous. However, Sharon felt that this was something she could deal with. She would come to find out it was not something she could ever change about him. In fact, there's one pretty funny story that Sharon told about her husband's roving eyes. Polanski was driving on Sunset Boulevard when he saw this beautiful girl walking in front of him. And he yelled out, Miss, you have a beautiful ass. And when the woman turned around, he realized it was Sharon. Apparently, Sharon was just undaunted by his dalliances. She reportedly said, Roman lies to me and I pretend to believe him. Meanwhile, Roman was not given final cut of his film, which caused an all-out war between him and Ransahoff. Roman fought to break both his and Sharon's film contracts. But the fight was so long that Sharon ended up filming two films that she was contractually obligated to do, Don't Make Waves and Valley of the Dolls. Of course, we've heard of Valley of the Dolls, so it's the more successful. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. For one. And after she tearfully begged to be released from her contract, Ransahoff finally relented. And her confession to him of wanting to marry Polanski was scoffed at. Ransahoff told her that Roman was screwing pretty much everyone in Hollywood. But Sharon felt that they were in love and maybe he would change. They did get married to the surprise of many. Both of their stars were rising at this time. He had just released Rosemary's Baby, and Valley of the Dolls was a huge success. Now, after all the whirlwind of press junkets, Sharon was very desperate for some stability. She was sick of traveling and being all around the world. That combined with the rumors of her husband's infidelities caused her to demand a normal life. As patient as she was because of her husband's torturous childhood, she could only take so much. 
Roman finally relented by curbing his wandering eye, of focusing just on his wife for a while. Not long after, Sharon discovered that she was pregnant. Reportedly, she knew because she poked a hole in her diaphragm. Even though her husband was not going to be thrilled by this idea, she finally told him. And to everyone's surprise, he slowly accepted the role of fatherhood. In February 1969, the couple rented a home at 10050 Cielo Drive and Benedict Canyon, which is near the luxurious Beverly Hills. The house was finished in 1944, and it housed many a celebrity, from Lillian Gish to Cary Grant to Henry Fonda. Most recently, its residents were record producer Terry Melcher and his girlfriend, actress Candace Bergen. Melcher was the son of actress Doris Day, and Bergen was the daughter of ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. They had lived in the residence from 1966 to 1969, when the couple vacated the home unexpectedly. Landlord theatrical agent Rudy Altobelli rented it to Sharon and Roman for about $1,200 a month. Now, Melcher's name is something to remember, because it will factor prominently into the story into the future. The house was way up in the canyon, which provided seclusion and privacy, and this was something they really needed after what they'd been living. It was complete with stone fireplaces, exposed beams, a swimming pool, and a guest house. 19-year-old William Gerritsen stayed in the guest house with Alto Belli's three dogs. So now I want to paint a picture of what life was like in that home, which is going to be a little bit difficult because there are varying accounts. The general consensus is that it was a party house, but, like I said, that's disputed. There are rumors of parties with lots of sex and lots of drugs. And the fact is that Roman was away most of the time preparing for his next film, something to be called The Day of the Dolphin. And due to her pregnancy, Sharon couldn't fly to be with him. So to keep Sharon company, Roman had invited his close friend, Wojtek Frykowski, and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, to stay in the house. 32-year-old Wojtek, like Roman, was from Poland. They were friends that were brought together by an almost fist fight. Roman was working the door at a school dance, and he refused to let Wojtek in due to his known behavior as a troublemaker. Words were exchanged, and the fist almost flew. When they ran into each other again weeks later, Wojtek brought Roman a drink. And that solidified their friendship. Wojtek originally went to the university to become a chemist, but he preferred hanging out with the film crowd. With some of his family's wealth, he produced one of Roman's short films. A lot of people point to Wojtek as the source of drugs at Cielo Drive. He reportedly ran with a really rough crowd. And some say that he was the middleman for drug trafficking ring of Canadian drug dealers, but... This is all conjecture. Wojtek was dating Folger Coffee heiress Abigail Folger. They'd been introduced to each other via writer Jerzy Kaczynski. The two communicated in very broken French and English, and they fought frequently. And some say because he lived off her fortune. Others say it was because of his rampant drug use of everything from cocaine to pot to LSD. And even though they had this very volatile relationship, they settled into the Tate Polanski household. 
And Abigail, or Gibby as she was known, was very different from her boyfriend. Although she was born into a life of wealth, she worked as a social worker, and she donated a lot of her fortune to civil rights. She had also invested around $3,000 in Sebring International. And according to her therapist, she was ready to leave her boyfriend at the end of the summer. Sharon was very pregnant, and perhaps Roman felt the couple could look after her. The fact was that Sharon was tired of the drugs and the parties at her house. The baby would be there in just a month. The caretaker, William Gerritsen, had woken up one morning to find Frykowski and two other men taking pictures of a nude woman. That just gives you an idea of the craziness that was going on. Since Wojtek had arrived, strange characters frequented the house. Landlord Rudy Altabelli had to ask a rather scruffy, creepy-looking visitor to leave the grounds. And he'd been seen on the grounds when Melcher lived there, too. Luckily, Sharon had some stability with J.C. Bring. Even though they'd broken off their engagement, they remained very close friends. He, like Wojtek and Abigail, was a constant fixture at the home at Cielo Drive. So now we come to that fateful day of Friday, August 8, 1969. That morning, Abigail and Wojtek went to run some errands. And then later, they joined Sharon and her friends, Joanna Pettit and Barbara Lewis, for lunch on the front patio, which was served by their housekeeper, Winifred Chapman. Abigail left around 3.45 in her yellow firebird for an appointment. Wojtek followed using Tate's Camaro to unload some boxes at the couple's rented Woodstock home. In the evening, Jay, Abigail, Sharon, and Wojtek had dinner at a place called El Coyote, a Mexican restaurant, and they returned home shortly after. Abigail retired to her room to read, and she talked to her mother around 10 p.m. They had plans to celebrate Abigail's birthday two days from then in Connecticut, and this was the last time Mrs. Folger would ever speak to her daughter. Now, Wojtek was on his ninth day of a mescaline trip. He was passed out on the couch in the living room, using an American flag as a blanket. Sharon and Jay were in her room, and due to the heat and pregnancy discomfort, Sharon had stripped down to her underwear, and Jay was sitting on the edge of the bed just keeping her company. So this is where I'm going to end part one of the murder of Sharon Tate. And next week, I'm going to go into the events of the night of August 8th. I just got back from the first true crime podcast festival, which was held in Chicago. And this was a ton of fun. I was really nervous about going, but went ahead and did it. And I got to meet all the podcasters that I talked to online. And everyone was super cool. And it was really great turnout. So I want to thank Lisa and Lainey for putting that whole thing together because it was a really great success. And it was also super cool meeting all the podcast fans. And there were actually some who knew who I was to my surprise, which was a thrill. I got to meet Jen, who is really cool. And I was fangirling over so many of the podcasters. Marissa from The Vanished came to talk to me and I almost died. I missed talking to Laura from the fall line, but she grabbed one of my stickers, which was cool. And I accidentally took Generation Y's table space, but everyone was super chill and super cool. And to me, it seemed a lot more intimate than what I imagined CrimeCon to be. 
So I'm really happy I went. And then afterwards, I had dinner with Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss, Mina from True Crime Finland, Kevin from Mirths and Monsters, and the adorable Tanya. And we had so many laughs and somehow all fit into one shower. So check out Red Rum Blonde Instagram for all the pics from Chicago. And join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. I want to welcome our newest member, Ashley, who's from Canada. Thank you for the suggestion and thanks for joining up. That's really cool. I'm glad you're here. So I'm working very hard on part two of next week's episode. And thanks for listening and catch you next week.